Namaste everyone. My guest today is uh, Shankara Bharadwaj Khandevali. Uh, he's been a speaker with us earlier. And uh, my after his after his talk, my conversations with him, which happen every now and then, I keep calling him on, on phone uh, to try and talk about the civilization, Hindu issues, um, and so on and so forth. And all my conversations with him have been extremely profound. I really enjoy them, learn a lot. I'm not an avid reader, so I hardly read books. I learn by conversations, by listening to people. This is the background, long background of, of what I'm doing with Anand Prasad and now starting with uh, Shankara as well. So today we are going to pick up the topic of um, uh, Islam and Islamic invasions into India. There's a recent video that has come out uh, on the, I think, the Charvaka podcast with Abhijit Ayer, where it talks about why India could not repel Turkic invasions and why we lost to the Turks. I sent that to Shankar to build on to a conversation for a conversation we were having. And uh, he had a completely different opposing viewpoint. So that's where we will start off today. So Shankar, thank you for being here. Are you all settled? <laughs> yes. Okay, good. So I'll start with you know my the the first part of the conversation, and we'll come to Abhijit Ayer in in just a bit. But uh, so with Anand Prasad, if you saw my conversation with him, I believe you did. There was one viewpoint that. Islam or Islamic invaders into India have been no different than any other invader. They've basically been invaders. And like all invaders, you go on a rampage, you plunder, you loot, rape, all of that is part of invasions. And that there are shades of grey, which is nobody's black or white, there are shades of grey, I get that. But uh, he was basically challenging this notion that uh, as if the Turkic or, um, you know, Mughal, basically Afghans or whoever, all the Islamic invasions that came in were any worse than anybody else, perhaps including India. We constantly talk about how uh, kings within India would fight each other and would never go rampage civilians or temples or break temples. Of course, there is this whole leftist narrative about breaking temples. We're going to challenge that in Sangam talks. Um, but so what's what's your view on it? And I'll come to the Mongols and some videos that I saw about them. So there will be there uh, will be definitely similarities between the Mughal uh, invasions and the uh, other invasions we see elsewhere by the Mongols, because basically whatever came here, the Mughals are basically Turko-Mongols. So the Mongol military machinery, which is uh, the military machine that is successful in uh, conquest in uh, other regions, the same machine was put to use even when they came to China or India. So there is no surprise that there would be similarities in the uh, military techniques. Military, uh, not limited to uh, tactics, but the view to war, view to how an enemy is treated and things like that. So you first intimidate, try to intimidate, uh, you try to win over, then you try to instill more fear, then you try to destroy. So the, these kinds of things you would 
Sí would be very similar. But the main difference we would observe is not in the military tactic. Obviously, the uh, any invading force would have its own uh, advantages built. If if it sees itself as an invading uh, as an invasion force, it would have certain uh, traits. It would build uh, mobility into itself. Its main, uh, you know, it would want to be mobile, go plunder, come back. It would want uh, retreat uh, mechanisms. It would also make sure it maximizes its uh, gains through any trade or an invasion. But if we go back further in time. let us say the hunas were there hunas uh, invaded the various regions uh, they usually say there are two types one went westwards from central asia and one came eastwards so we also had uh, huna invasions yashodharma we say has defeated hunas he has assimilated the hunas into the you know indian uh, soil but their uh, tactic was also or techniques were also similar basically cavalry archery and things like that so those things are not the uh, main differentiating factors but what we need to understand is hunas went uh, different places they did not convert others into you know becoming hunas or they did not make those territories huna similarly mongols wherever they invaded they established a mongol uh, empire but there is no trace of uh, you know mongol uh, religion or culture that they have established wherever they went they tried to assimilate into wherever they went they invaded china they adopted chinese practices they did not create a mongol religion in china whereas islam did so that's where the main difference comes islam so the pre conversion let us say the mongols uh, actually defeated a lot of uh, muslim territories but eventually they also got converted not by military loss but because it is their tendency to get assimilated then once the conversion did happen you would see a qualitatively very different uh, uh, outcome of their invasions wherever the islamic mongol machine went they had converted others so they came to india they tried to establish their rule they converted indians they have established an islamic empire not a mongol empire or a turkic empire whereas mongols went to hungary also they established the mongol empire so they weren't establishing a turkic empire that's probably because they were there were so many factions in them i mean what if the janpadas from india one of them had become an, an invading force and gone somewhere they would have established for example Chandragupta Maurya. Okay, I mean, of course, I'm, I'm going back way back in time, but if he had started going to different territories and started invading, he would have established a, okay, a Mauryan empire, but not a Hindu empire. Of course, there was no sense of Hindu at that time, but Shivaji Maharaj did, for example. So he was saying, "We want to establish Hindu Vishwarajya." So I'm, I'm, I'm being a devil's advocate here. Okay, I am completely with you, but being a devil's advocate here. and trying to make arguments on the contrary so had imagined shivaji one he would have established in the viswaraj in all of india then gone to attack then taken over afghanistan gone to central asia to establish the same hindu viswaraj correct yes so that, that exactly is a response to the islamic invasion had the things continued the way the pre islamic world continued 
I mean, the Islamic pre-Christi and all these things would have, would have been very different. Then you would not require a Hindavi Swaraj. Got it. In fact, so we, our uh, geographic uh, territory was very clearly marked, right? I mean, Bharata is there forever. So, I mean, although you called it different names earlier, Ajanaba, and then it became Bharata later. But that territory as a geocultural entity has always remained in our psyche. There were political units that kept changing, but they were never uh, in the name of one religion or anything. But say the Cholas, right? The Cholas went to Philippines and this whole thing of that the we were never an invading army, we've never gone outside invaded. I don't know, maybe maybe the Cholas treated Philippines and Singapore, formerly Sri Vijaya and all of that region as their as an extension of India or as an extension of Bharat Varsha. I don't know how they saw it. Maybe you can shed light on it also. Uh, yeah, that we don't invade or did not invade is not obviously true. Not just southwards or the westwards. We went uh, southwards or eastwards. We also went westwards. So the ancient empires had gone as far as Khorasan. When our kings did Dashwamedha, it's not that they limited themselves to the uh, Hindu core or uh, that kind of region. They went much farther west. It's not that we did not want to expand further or anything. The political ambition and capability of the rulers, if that was there, they did expand. But it was purely political. The cultural part was non-traumatic in the sense that the people of those regions actually adopted our practices because they found these more advanced. So what evidence would we have of, of, the, of the fact that we weren't imposing uh, the Cholas, Brahma, Vishnu, Mahesh temples all over Laos and Cambodia? Isn't that, a, can that not be taken as a, as a fact of us imposing our culture on them rather than them easily adopting it, adopting the culture? That's right. So if there is an imposition, there has to be an evidence of imposition, which is basically a conflict at the civilian level or all that. Now, probably it is not a fair discussion without having enough evidence because we don't know what exactly happened in the remote past. But at the same time, uh, we only know of military conflicts. We do not actually know of civilian uh, atrocity Hmm. to show that we did impose. And for that, is there any indirect evidence? Yes. Within India, we have not seen that kind of thing where, except for brief periods where the Astika Nastika rivalries and later Vaishnava Shaiva kind of rivalries came, we don't see actually civilian trauma or imposition of one type, way of life onto the people and things like that. So, as an extension, if the same culture has gone elsewhere, it would behave the same. So, the key difference I'm I'm seeing, and that's a powerful insight, is that there was no civilian rampaging. There was no mass murder, loot, plunder, none of that. There may may have been invasions, but they were invasions of kings, of territories, and all of that. And perhaps the, the and the fact that there was no civilian resistance, also perhaps right. There are no stories of that. Um, in fact, yeah, to this to- date, they actually, if you see the uh, Ayodhya. Uh, motif in different countries. They actually try to relate to this Ayodhya and they come, they uh, try to have harmonious relations and things like that. The, today's political establishments may see that favorably or otherwise, but uh, the let us say Thailand or Indonesia, these people actually relate to these uh, uh, 
uh, Indian land as their uh, source of their culture. They don't actually see this as an imposing uh, entity. Yeah, but they that's have not the, seen you as it. But, but Shankar, that could be the, I mean, that argument could, could be true for Indian Muslims also. If you're in any Muslim groups on Facebook or anywhere else, or in any conversations, group conversations, you will find that they actually find their heroes in Babar and Aurangzeb and Ghori and Ghaznavi. But that's precisely the point. An Indian Muslim would see an outsider as his uh, idol. Somebody who has brought in and everybody accepts Babar has imposed things on us. Yeah. No Indonesian says that we have imposed anything on them. Yes. So uh, actually, and he doesn't disown his own uh, territory or region or he doesn't look down upon his own native culture as something inferior to what we have exported there. Yeah. So that split personality is not there in an Indonesian Hindu, whereas it is there in an Indian Muslim. Yeah, which makes him uh, essentially disloyal to the native culture because now he thinks something alien is superior. Now he has to impose that on his own land to improve or elevate his own land. While an Indonesian Hindu can take pride in Bali and Indonesia and being Indonesian and Hindu at the same time. And look at India perhaps favorably, but like a separate country as well, equally at the same time. So politically, he has no, or uh, even military sense, he would not actually be sold out. Tomorrow, if let us say India is to invade Indonesia, I don't think he would be sold out to Indian, uh, just because uh, there is a cultural tie. Okay. In that sense, I would say nationalism itself, the sense of nation or sense of motherland, is more uh, akin to the pagan cultures than the Abrahamics. Abrahamism is inherently transnational. So, just going back to the Turks, Turko-Mongols, there was basically no one Turkic empire that was invading. It was basically Ghoris and Ghaznavis and then and before that uh, Bin Qasims and all of them. They were taking Islam along with them. One could argue that Islam taking Islam along with them is possibly just a way to motivate their forces as opposed to an ideological, as opposed to be the driving force behind the invasions. You see the point? They wanted to invade for loot, plunder, wealth, expansion of their empire and using Islam is a way to motivate their forces. For example, you could say that uh, the current Turkey uh, president uh, Erdogan, he actually just what four, three, four months back, he was trying to, he was addressing his uh, soldiers in a big hall and he brought up a, you know, some sort of a chant of we are the soldiers of Allah and we will, we have never been defeated and, you know, just to raise up uh, their emotions and all of that. Is he using, is he sold to Islam, to spreading Islam? Or is he sold to the, 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 the idea of a supremacist idea of Turkey taking over uh, while using Islam as a tool? And perhaps the Arabs were doing the same thing. Do you have thoughts on that? That is fairly easy to make out because all the, okay, it's, you, uh, if we hypothetically say that they are using Islam as a tool, 
and the master of the tool is the uh, let us say the turkic or arab uh, they never they, say their own empire correct so but they have never said that, that empire is the they have not called themselves that they have called themselves the caliphate so when gauri gauri one and raided into india what was he calling himself the empire that they were representing that empire never called itself as uh, a certain geopolitical empire it always called itself the islamic empire i mean lodhis called them the lodhi lodhis right i mean at least from indian perspective they are called the lodhis for example the afghans so they had not... that's the two sides of it medieval indian political history yes a very yes. brief article where i try to bring this contrast yeah so if we see at 700 ad itself the islamic empire has started expanding quite fast and in a big way mm-hmm. and by 700 itself it is comparable probably slightly bigger than uh, what we had in india between 700 and 1000 uh, ad we had uh, probably by 1000 nearly 1000 we lost afghan region but that was uh, you know after 300 years the gains of the uh, islamists were limited to that region whereas elsewhere they had lost much bigger territories persia had basically fallen on so so by 700 ad they were actually called the caliphate here exactly it's called the arab empire okay arab. the arabs so yeah arab or turkic basically that uh, concept of caliphate was always there for them and the caliphate was basically always islamic in nature it was always islamic the khanate was mongol but eventually that also you know became with the turko mongol thing it also became islamic and the uh, graph below shows basically the number of invasions we had seen in uh, during different periods this map i had taken from uh, uh, manasatarangini blog who has generated a lot of uh, insights on this subject so the sheer number of invasions we have seen we have to even if we make a superficial win loss ratio our kings would come out our warriors would come out in flying colors in terms of how many victories they had seen compared to the losses so in terms of the motivation they had in defending the land or the ways of life we had been practicing that is unquestionable in terms of how heroic they were even in terms of success not just in terms of their commitment Now, so abhijit tayar talks about that we had we were trying to ape them we were basically trying to get horses when we didn't have them i've heard this later also in the vijayanagar empire that they had to and, and abhijit tayar brought this up as well that they were trying to there was something called the dakhini horses i've heard this earlier uh, right they were trying to yeah. basically yeah that so. that if we go back slightly uh, even in the huna time and then the later the mongol time subsequently the islamic time any invading forces would believe in uh, investing in uh, cavalry or mobile forces so mobile forces have their advantages hmm. prospering civilizations which are not inherently invading by nature they might be invading but they are not invading by nature their investments would be different 
and when the encounters happen there would be advantages on both sides disadvantages on both sides if you are defending on your own land you would be at loss so there are lessons that our people learned over time the first lesson is building fortifications so uh, our history was always of symmetric warfare uh, man fighting man in a pitched battle and even weapons and things like that so one the moment this became asymmetric and the raids could happen in the midnight they could uh, you know take uh, civilians away abduct people or kill in the uh, massacre in the midnights and things like that then we started building fortifications that's why we see a lot more fortifications on the northwest to defend basically from this kind of invasion so similarly it was our response to islam or a different way of way of warfare we are actually told that we never understood the nature of islam that is why prithviraj let whatever the story is truth or not truth i'm not sure 17 times he let him off in his rajput uh, honor or something like that he's he's he he's derided a lot he is derided probably because of his own hagiographical uh, saying that he has done that way <laughs> we, we don't exactly know as he said how many times the invasions happened and how many he really repelled but uh, again the question is this you had this big caliphate on the west and india was basically bearing the brunt of the entire islamic machinery for several centuries did we even have the logistics to go on an offensive westwards as a we as could. an entire nation maybe yes i doubt and as an entire nation to mobilize that whole military towards one raid again it comes back to your logistics do you have such a mobile invasion force or not it's not just about can kings come together keeping aside their egos hmm. do you have that military machine suitable for such an invasion westwards i doubt eastwards southwards it was probably relatively easier we also did see uh, expeditions we had made invasions so that's a different story westwards we were actually at the border facing a very huge empire so it's basically a question of how much you can resist it even if you can attack how much can you damage it in a way that you don't completely lose yourself after that so it's it's a, a very practical question at that point it's not as if people did not think of these things lalitaditya actually went westwards vikramaditya also went westwards uh, so i mean it's barbaric invasions were not new to us we did keep facing those invasions over millennia not just centuries but the difference that islam brought is what we will need to understand it basically was not just these raiding armies it was not just a, a representative of one geopolitical entity it was basically bringing with it an ideology that can unify several geopolitical units it's transnational in its nature that is why it got its strength so the mongols did unite but at the same time mongols also had their you know so if you have to compare ourselves to mongols mongols were essentially polytheists tengrin uh, their uh, uh, blue sky goddess the, she was their uh, goddess genghis himself was uh, a polytheist so he did not actually employ the methods to intimidate the civilians to convert or anything 
so the, the gains he had were basically limited to political and military gains that was why the empire was not permanent no political empire is permanent so empires rise and fall genghis empire also fell the mongol empire fell and after that today the world does not actually have any mongol imprint in their day to day life whereas wherever islam has gone it has actually tried to assimilate others that is where the difference islam is making to the world is coming into picture so you can definitely not say that uh, they were simply invaders they were the invaders being islamic invaders not being islamic is where all the difference lies okay i mean they, they, we need to separate the military the political the cultural you know uh, all these aspects yeah the military techniques we would be seeing as i said invasion forces have their traits there would be similarities but that is only the military side of it but definitely the mongol military machine was not the one using islam it was islam using the military machine to conquer the world so coming back to this point now of uh, did we understand the nature of islam did we understand or were we in was prithviraj johan constantly in uh, in the imagination that he was fighting a dharmic king an indian territorial ruler fighting for territory you 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 seem to suggest that we had an understanding of islam right so yeah i was i just started the point there uh, in terms of fortifications how we learned our lessons and started building it similarly we had learned a lot of lessons about the nature of the enemy and also how to deal with that enemy the another example we see is the uh, jauhar that happened three jauhars have happened in the chitor that have uh, since babar came that had actually driven a very uh, strong lesson to the enemy basically that we can fall but we won't bend that, that message was extremely important in making the enemy deal with you in certain way akbar had to you know basically change his ways he realized that this mode of conquest is not going to get him anywhere further he will keep destroying people destroying uh, empires but he can't build an empire he had to get by force he learned civilized ways of living and civilized ways of political expansion so he started building alliances he started dealing with his uh, uh, opponents or rivals in a uh, you know you call it deceit or friendly or whatever he applied more civilized ways of dealing with people and dealing with his uh, political and military opponents also so it wasn't out of some greatness or inherent greatness of akbar like irfan habib i heard him once say akbar was a oh what a terrific man he was and all of that and there are of course opposing views that he was as much a jihadi at the outset of his career political career in india right so yeah that jihadi aspect is there he took pride in calling himself a ghazi so that is there but did akbar learn his lessons and then turn civilized obviously because there are three generations there since babar to prove that their ways have become civilized over time so hindus at their own cost of blood had actually civilized their invader and we are not attributing that credit to hindus anywhere in history right i mean because the, 
we have not seen this history as india's century it's the invasion centric history that has been written that is why we don't actually see how our people saw these things and what how they have shaped their reactions and responses to the different uh, situations again jawhar is one example but we see across the land we have seen such sacrifices right i mean people immolating or that that's not limited to rajasthan region it has happened elsewhere also but yeah primarily the kshatriyas have done that and more importantly it's not as if you know uh, okay uh, in the probably last uh, several decades we have seen a more articulate intellectual uh, statement of islam let us say when ramswarup calls it uh, holy terror although the book is banned that is a very accurate insight but at the same time this is not something lost on us i mean when by the time of prithviraj itself we had seen several invasions they, we have seen them uh, abduct women and sell them as slaves and all this it is a known thing it's not as if people did not know it but we also know the response to it when vijayaranya swami established that uh, vijayanagara empire it was not because he did not understand the nature of the enemy he understood the nature of the enemy he understood also the solution the solution is based on let us say your if the problem statement is terror the enemy is basically using terror as an instrument your answer would be to count how do you counter the terror the only answer to terror or fear is looking fear eye to eye the hindu kshatra has the only answer to it so far the world has not devised a better answer to it and that is why we could actually repel the invasions although invasions uh, did happen consistently across uh, over centuries non stop invasions came we did fight them we never gave up people died people have seen loss loss of life loss of honor loss of property everything but they never gave in to that one thing called fear today we have given in to fear so are our ancestors better in understanding islam or are we better we think we have understood it we have not we have neither understood the problem or the solution they have understood the solution they have implemented and demonstrated the solution so establishing a hindu kshatra empire is the one solution to islamic terror and that they have demonstrated shivaji has demonstrated vijayaranya has demonstrated vijayanagara empire has demonstrated and uh, you know frankly aaj hamara aukat kya hai we can't even get equal rights in so called indian uh, you know democratic republic how much have we actually understood the nature of the psychological nature of the problem to address it why do you think, think we lost there. it it was because of the british and coming together of hindus muslims together or is this a gandhian problem was it deeper than that it is deeper than that what happened with british was basically our political uh, entity collapsed and whatever came later is a essentially a post colonial political entity it is not a native political entity that is what the hindutva is trying to rebuild in bits and pieces but it's very far from where it has to really get we have just made a beginning i would say one century of hindutva movement could just get a government but in terms of uh, you know thought process and to get where we really need to be there is a long way 
where all these psychological problems can be actually really articulated and we can posit a solution to those and hindutva you're saying is basically a response to islam otherwise we would have no need for it no no hindutva is a response to the collapse of uh, native political entity uh, okay so it's a civilian response if you like uh, mass civilian means the employed a civilian means to rebuild that lost political entity because after the demilitarizing that the british has done probably this was the alternative they thought would work for us who thought that was not anybody's movement not the rss i was having a very i uh, got into a conversation uh, uh, not me personally but we had a we had the chance of having rahul roshan come and talk about his book on uh, he's written a book called sanghi who never went to a shakha is basically yes. saying uh, all of us when we talk in public forums we get classified as a sanghi we have nothing to do with rss we probably don't even believe in its ideology whatever it means we are just i don't know working out of emotion working out of intuition or whatever it is i mean pe- people like you may be working out of intellectual understanding but people like me are simply working out of an emotion you know from early childhood days of of this being my mother and this there is no difference between the land called the mother and the and the culture and the spiritual thought process however diversified it might be right so for someone like me it's an emotional response what is classified as hindutva whatever yeah so i was basically saying that uh, i mean you 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 said they they imagine who who is they it's basically all individuals right all of, all of us spread all over the country yeah but again if you see it as a mother you need to also say that this is a collective organism having its own responses you may not actually see one uh, collective political leadership doing all that thing it won't happen that way but this collective organism has its own genius it will generate those responses it has generated gorak at some time khalsa at some time it will keep generating those responses it's not created due to one thought leader yeah thought leaders will come let us say when uh, hindutva is probably attributed to savarkar hegde but there are lot of people uh, even uh, swami sadananda daraj samaj but it's not those individuals or uh, uh, we give obviously we are uh, our great gratitude to them but we see this as a response of this collective organism so shivaji is hindavi swaraj to guru gobind singh's khalsa pant all of these and uh, the vijayanagar empire possibly the homs not possibly but certainly the homs all of them are basically a response the the collective response of this organism i don't know what to call it the 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 idea yeah, of india know, or the idea of i would see because okay did anybody articulate that north was getting invaded you need to generate knowledge from south but it just happened i mean that collective organism has its ways of responding is there a collective genius there is but it won't be visible as a intellectual articulation it goes much deeper than that and the johars are also part of it or part of it they are one response to it 
yeah yeah or manifold response that this collective organism has generated different types at different times based on the situation you so going eastwards generating resources then trying to bear the brunt on the west on the northwest and trying to resist all this if you see this is one big organism you can see its responses in a more coherent way are they coherent obviously they are coherent I mean, it's mm-hmm. that perspective but yeah i mean the, is there actually we, uh, one point we uh, i wanted to make at that time uh, when you mentioned uh, shivaji the hindavi swaraj was a specific response required at that time until then probably whatever empires were called we did not have the problem of othering or uh, you know vertical split of the world into an insider and outsider that is basically uh, an abrahamic thought process we understand that there is they always have this believer non believer and then even communism has that twofold uh, world view did did we understand that of islam that there is an othering the reason i ask you this is because in uh, one of our lectures of smita mukherjee she actually talks about uh, i'd asked her a question about read somewhere that shivaji maharaj was writing letters to aurangzeb when he had established the hindu swaraj trying to reform him that you are the emperor of india he actually saw aurangzeb as the emperor of india somehow and this i was not able to reconcile because for us shivaji maharaj was you know the big correct establisher no, of no, that happens i mean just because you write i mean savarkar wrote letters to british all that happens that is not an ideological statement or commitment okay but the point that india had several empires several uh, uh, traditions were there we, i mean our religious ecosystem is different now we have an ecosystem where traditions have their full life cycle they come they expand then they dissolve into the stream new traditions keep coming that is our ecosystem now this ecosystem had no direct way of dealing with an entity like islam because it never wanted to assimilate it never wanted to be part of this it basically wanted to destroy this and replace this with its own uh, monotheistic idea so that was the first time we had to within our society separate the insider and the outsider until then the insider outsider was a clear geographic also there was no insider that was outsider once the invasion succeeded and by 1700 or 1600 uh, by that time we have actually had a lot of uh, change within our uh, demographic change within our geography so we had to make this distinction that is the backdrop of shivaji's uh, articulation of hindavi swaraj otherwise he could have just called it Uh, independent india or whatever mukta bharat or whatever but it's not that it was actually hindavi swaraj because we had to ensure our kingdoms follow our ways of lives and they are loyal to this uh, civilization this culture so that was why you had uh, these uh, uh the bundels or several uh, homes all these people actually identified themselves as the natives they always saw the outsider as the outsider but in a political sense they obviously have to deal with the political opponent in a very different way there this ideology ideological statements won't work right i mean that's a different dynamic military dynamics are different 
ideology dynamics are different so we need to see all these in their respective places and there obviously we don't see that shivaji like clarity as much as our like clarity uh, sorry say that again there we don't see shivaji lacked any clarity just like savarkar did not like any clarity he was sure what he was doing but yeah i mean practically you do a lot of negotiations in using lot of statements that doesn't make to me any contradiction i mean this uh, statement she was using uh, with uh, mejaraje uh, jay singh if i am right Hmm. when he was negotiating that was very different he was saying aurangzeb is outsider why are you cooperating with him when he talks to aurangzeb he says obviously yeah, you are a lot of this up you should be more benevolent all these things and actually that, if you see it in this light he was actually trying either he was being tactful and maybe shrewd or actually he was making an honest attempt to maybe cause some reform in him just like perhaps johars were a response and like you said orang uh, akbar reformed after seeing what was happening so maybe shivaji was attempting attempting that thing else i don't know because by then aurangzeb's nature was known okay so probably it was not as much of a reform it was just a you know you just throw anything at your enemy because aurangzeb was very clearly seen as a uh, as an outsider i mean representative of an outsider ideology not just as an invader and later if we see uh, in fact shahu makes a promise to aurangzeb so after that we will see a lot of political reconciliations lot of people uh, to this date keep uh, debating whether baji should have allowed the delhi sultanate to continue he should have replaced it with the maratha crown and all that but yeah i mean that should be seen more in a political and military sense rather than a understanding of islam it's not because they didn't understand its nature they understood its nature that is why they wanted to eliminate such empires and get their de facto control over the land so while the de jure was left with uh, delhi the de facto control was all taken out by the uh, taken up by the marathas but then why would they not why would uh, i i don't know so much about shivaji maharaj but i mean at some point i know that uh, if i'm not wrong bajirao peshwa or was it uh, ahilya bai holkar that she had offered to tear down somebody had offered to tear down the kashi uh, the gyanvapi masjid and build the kashi vishwanath rebuilt at the right spot and then there is some conspiracy theory about the local brahmin saying that they will be we will be slaughtered and so the marathas did not so the question i'm asking just to reiterate is that if we understood the nature of islam and that we knew that a large part of our population was also converting we don't know how much maybe 10 20% or whatever uh, why would we not attempt to reconvert right right there and then by force when we see it did not happen it did happen marathas probably also had a ministry itself for reconversion so it's not as if that really? did not right yeah i think so and reconversions did happen it's not that they did not happen this uh, that they were impure and we did not want to be convert that's no. i mean if you see the devalasmati its instructions are very clear the amount of compassion there the amount of attempt made 
but yeah there is no black and white i mean they never had enough control to, or time to reconvert the whole mass and it is not going to happen overnight uh, from tomorrow you are in basically you need to it's a very long process right i mean within our society there were a lot of changes the the varna uh, mechanism itself the dynamic had collapsed or was on the collapse so socially there were a lot of changes so it's not a very easy transformation while facing an invasion to get this kind of change forget the past when they were actually facing external invasions today you don't have an invasion in 70 years how much could we do that's that that argument is because like you said we we have just not understood this uh, no let us say the indian Islam. state did not do indian state did not do is fine the state is a continuation of british uh, mind mindset or whatever but the moments also have not actually gone that way we keep saying garvapasi but garvapasi how does garvapasi happen without empowering your traditions into the forefront no conversion happens through a political process conversion happens if your traditions are going out and doing getting people whether ramanuja did or shankara did it is basically because those people had that uh, place in the society they could do that kind of activity and so, the process has stopped during uh, not stopped actually it has slowed down the bhakti was a defense obviously but uh, that kind of aggressive uh, turn back or conversion had slowed down during the external invasions because this kind of uh, representative of traditions were physically eliminated now there is no such threat i mean there is still such threat uh, we keep seeing uh, sadhus getting murdered but that is the area where we need to focus and we need to empower them and they will do their job the yeah, other way round i mean sorry to say i will say humbly and uh, i normally never criticize any seers or sages but i had a chance to once uh, take a, a you know as i normally do behave very naively sometimes or um, in out of instinct i actually had a chance to meet uh, puri shankaracharya ji in delhi once and i had written a letter this was during the time when i was part of the hindu charter team um on two things that one he should requesting him pleading to him that may maybe he could give a framework a structure of large scale ghar vapsi um, and what if every little temple could actually say okay this is how we do ghar vapsi for example arya samaj has really simplified it you go there and within 2 hours or 1 hour of havan yagya they will say you are done you are a hindu now um i don't know why every temple can't do it there is a rejection of this whole idea and i had gone with this humble submission and shockingly uh, i heard that it was actually the other way around that whatever is left of the hindu society will collapse if you bring if you do ghar vapsi that was his response i was completely broken dejected depressed after that conversation is as a matter of fact which is true because right now as i said it's not about garvapasi more than garvapasi it is about the existing hindu society if you see the sheets or the koshas in the hindu society the innermost sheet has been completely corroded it does not have the vitality required to uh maintain a dharmic uh, lifestyle across all the sheets that is a matter of fact now these people are 
just they don't have the wherewithal or the control or the reach of their world to serve their purpose that is true so we need to work that's where again uh, uh, you know the political view versus the insider view comes if we need to look inside out from the innermost sheath let us say the vedamata or the dharma vaidika dharma from there we'll have to see what are the sheaths different koshas in the society what is the extent of practice alive in each of these you may see temple going uh, people but that does not mean they are actually hindu in their thought so it's a complex problem when the seers say it is complex it is really complex it's it's uh, as we stand today it is really an uphill task we need to ensure sufficient core or the critical mass comes in the innermost sheath in a way that it can exercise control over the rest we'll talk about this uh, innermost yeah. sheath of what this is and all of that i'd like to understand maybe a separate conversation we'll pick this up sure. as one of the topics but uh, coming back to the role of the seers we'll need to understand again in terms of sheets there is a moolamatha there is an utsavamatha the moolamatha or the whatever the shankaramathas are there their responsibility is not hinduizing society their responsibility is preservation of what could be lost if they are not there vedamata will be collapsing if the shankaramathas are not there vedamata should be practiced by the grahastha today he is not practicing so the only abode where that is still surviving is these uh, what is indirect relation with these mathas so if they give up their job we will end up with a very superficial society which doesn't know what it is practicing so i would definitely not say that they should be brought into this conversion activity there should be outer sheets where more activist uh, traditions should be encouraged so they should see, be doing that you see ramananda acharya uh, kabir and sant kabir and sant ravidas's guru or as, even arya samaj so as, as the outer sheet as the outer sheet you you see the innermost sheet yeah okay. they would be second third whatever i mean we can analyze that later but that's where the that activism comes and they should be doing that and that needs to be really encouraged they they should be working hand to hand hand in hand with the uh, hindutva movements that's how i would see we can see any success i mean that's the other part now in hindutva also a lot of people the moment you talk to them they say yeah these peers are not responsible they don't understand this problem right they are not supposed to that's not their job thank you for that because they are doing a more permanent work which would suffer once you lose the permanent principle nothing else will remain so they are doing a more thankless job but we should leave them alone for that this is a good conclusion to the yeah did they understand the nature of this i'm coming back to that one uh, yeah fear is one aspect we discussed similarly uh, establishing a hindu empire they saw is the solution because that empire uh, the king would be responsible for upholding dharma so the way he looks at temples he funds them the he the ways of life he tries to protect that once becomes the uh, rule rule book for the king then rest of the problems are solved in fact if you see the harmony religious harmony there was no hindu muslim conflict under hindu empires there was only a muslim hindu muslim conflict in either a secular empire or under a islamic empire so even in that purely data 
driven sense that is the solution for us going forward establish a dharmic empire automatically religious harmony everything will take care of itself we don't have to address each of these problems either garwapsi or the caste problem one by one these all these have that one common solution that's how i would see that it's separate conversation uh, shankar but maybe just very quickly right if we if we india even though it is not a, a dharmic state hindu state it is um just the but just by the sheer population the the values of of i mean the, the indian state actually carries the values of uh, hindu civilization even now that is why it is pluralistic in nature it tries to masquerade as secular and all of this business but basically it is a plural it carries the plural values forward i don't i would debate that yeah okay because indian state is according to my knowledge an abrahamic state it believes in secularism which is an abrahamism okay and it, it the way it uh, states what a religion is what what it assumes of a religion it is basically about uh, you know the propagation of religion and all this is how abraham is see it mm. we don't see religion in that way so our native religious ethos or the amount of freedom you need to give to, for religious practices that's not there anywhere in the indian states uh, outlook that is why it has been disadvantaging hindus so it's by rule wrong it's not uh, by uh, you know by intent by rule both ways it is wrong intent wise we can debate because people at that time were confused all these things but anyway psychoanalysis is not necessary but the spirit and word of the law both are abrahamic in nature is what i mean that's again as i said we'll need to discuss that uh, probably as a dharmarajya how it would look like how different it would be from what we currently have and all that yeah those are all conversations i want to do with you we will end this one over here thank you very much it's been very very insightful uh brilliant i hope to do this every weekend with you let's see uh, how we can you know keep weaving things together from where we um, leave off at so thank you all the people so we will we'll continue from there also thank you very much yeah.